So, word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, uh, i got a lot um, on my mind this morning, and uh, it's hard to hard to keep all the plates spinning sometimes. But um, when I think about how many things we have, I have going on, I, I think about you. And uh, yeah. it's just, uh, you just got to smile. I mean, it's, it's just no comparison. And yet, um, we have our capacity. And I thank you for the scriptures that says that you remember that we are but dust, that we are very limited on time. And the older I get, the more I realize how limited on energy, time, and resources. Really in. But we know that's not true for you. And thank you that you are the God who is <clears throat> unlimited on those things. You are sovereign. You are in control. And we acknowledge that this morning. Uh, even if it doesn't make sense to us in the moment, we know that you are working all things together for good for those who love you and call according to your purpose. And working them out for your glory. And we see that here in the text in front of us as we look at the triumphal entry, uh, coronation of King Jesus, the presentation of the Passover lamb. Um, all of these things come together in a beautiful way, like threads in a tapestry that present a, a profound picture. Uh, and in the midst of the excitement, there's, there's a mix of sadness. And, and in the midst of what looks like defeat in, in a week or so after these events, it's really the greatest victory. And, uh, and you are glorified through the cross and, uh, and through the coming king. We thank you that we have this hope in front of us this morning. Remind us again and wash us in the water of your word. In Jesus' name. Titled this, The Presentation, Presentation of King Jesus, God's Passover Lamb. I, I, I don't know how many times I readjusted the title as I went through it. You probably do that. I started this some weeks back, and I'm, I'm glad I did. I actually started it in... Around the same time as the, as the notes just before this, the Mary anoints Jesus notes. <clears throat> okay, swallow water here. <clears throat> There's so much happening here, and this what we call the triumphal entry is pop popularly called the triumphal entry. Sometimes people know it as Palm Sunday, right? Um, and, and I have to say, I'll talk more about this um, as we go through this, but then also coming up, um, especially when we get to the crucifixion, there's actually a lot of debate out there as to the timeline, okay? There's some things that are not up for debate. We know he was resurrected on Sunday. We know that. We also know, and we'll talk about this in your notes here, from Leviticus, the day on the calendar, on the Jewish calendar, when the Passover lamb was to be killed. Okay, so we know that, and we know Jesus was crucified then. But backing up from that, it gets a little tricky as to exactly when all of these events happened, because um, as I've been taking a, a look at, at, of course, John, but also the other Gospels, because all the Gospels talk about this, okay? And to do justice to it, you know, you need to look at those other Gospels. And 
And uh, I don't know if we'll have time this morning, but I did bring this, uh, One Perfect Life. And, you know, it's really good to get a sense of, of all of those Gospels woven together. And maybe we'll have a chance to read that. But if not today, next week. But anyway, I, what I'm noticing is like John, the other Gospels, and the other Gospels, Mark is probably the most maybe spread out or consistent. His his gospel that we're going through, uh, you know, the Bible study is so condensed anyway that it's it's just so quick, boom, 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 boom. But the other gospels, particularly Matthew and John and Luke to some degree as well too, they they kind of move rather quickly through his early years of ministry. They give us things obviously, but as we get into this period of time in Jesus's ministry, as he's now finally coming back around to uh, to Judea. Remember that he's been traveling around all over the place. Early part of his ministry, he was just mm -hmm. like hardly stayed in one town for a day. You know, he's just all over. As as his ministry is drawing to close, and as the cross is coming, he's slowing down. I and mean, we've already seen that in John, right? We felt that as he's he stayed in that town. He's out of town. He's out of Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, just just out of their reach because they had remember in the chapter eleven they had the official council that to put him to death and notify us if anybody sees him right so he stays just out of their reach um, the place Ephraim there and then now he's coming back into the Judean and greater what we might call greater Jerusalem area and that's where he's going to stay until his crucifixion and resurrection. And as that happens, this is where so much of the content, particularly of the rest of John, uh, Matthew, big chunk of Matthew and big chunks of Luke and, and Mark too, to some degree, all the Gospels, it's like they slow down and there's so much material that's just happening in this, what maybe, like I said, it's hard to be dogmatic about a timeline, about maybe two weeks of time. And so when you read the Gospels, because there's so much material in there, and if you're moving through at the pace that we do, it's easy to lose sight of this. It's really a short period of time. Okay. So, but this, this presentation of, of the king, okay, which is what John calls it in One Perfect Life, and I, and I like that. Of all the titles, uh, one of his messages, he talked about the coronation of the king was a, was a title. Um, commonly called triumphal entry. This is so significant um, that it's in all four Gospels, and it is it is sort of the, you might say, the culmination of his public ministry. It, it comes to us to hit a head here. Now, you might think, as I do, as I did, you know, that, that the cross is the, and the, the cross is the ultimate goal, okay? But his the cross was really kind of almost uh, done out of the public eye in a way. You know, and I'm really studying this in John, you know, chapters uh, uh, 18 and, and 19, particularly, and then comparing again to the other Gospels. And it's very clear, as, as we've said before, that the Jewish leaders, while they had already made up their mind that they wanted to kill him, and they made the formal degree, de decree and everything, it's clear from the other Gospels, John doesn't tell us this, but the other Gospels tell, do tell us that they didn't want to do it during the Passover. 
the fear of the people. He was very popular with people. And this right here helps us really understand just how popular he was. Okay. And so it's, I think it's easy, you know, we, I've heard people say, and I kind of thought this way for many years too. Well, you know, um, the crowd is so fickle because, of, you know, here they are, welcome him, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and son of David and everything. And then a few days later, crucify him. We'll not have this man to reign over us, right? I think what, I think it's more nuanced than that. It's not the fickleness of the crowd so much. And there is, there are some people that probably flip flop back and forth. But, the, but what seems to be being presented in the Gospels is that Jesus was very popular among the people. Now, some of the people up in Galilee had rejected him, right, and didn't follow him anymore. We know that. But that doesn't mean everybody was that way, and especially the people in Judea. Remember, he, for the most part, he stayed out of Judea pretty much. He, he'd been around all of those other places, particularly up, as we know from Mark, you know, his, his base of operations in Capernaum. Right, which is up there in squarely in Galilee. Okay, so he's still, in fact, you remember at the beginning of chapter seven, his brothers said to him, You need to spend a little more time in Judea because if you want to make something of yourself in the eyes of the world, there's you got a lot of fans down there, essentially. Right, you need to go down there and do these miracles down there and, and, and rally that support so you can take charge. Right, so and his brothers, uh, were perceptive and they, they could see that. So I think what we're seeing here is, is finally the sort of um, the culmination of, of all of the ministry that he had been doing, the reputation that he had been building. And then as John makes clear, the, the, the match, if you will, that really lit the fuse was the raising of Lazarus. Okay. So that when Lazarus is raised, it, and remember, it's it's no small audience and it's no slouchy audience. These aren't the Galileans, the roughnecks, the half-breeds, you know, many of them, you know, the Samaritans, of course, were the leftover of the ten tribes intermarried with the Assyrians, right? But, you know, there, there's a lot of that influence up there, too, so that, you know, they're kind of looked down on. But no, 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 it's none of those roughneck half-breeds from up north these are these are reputable god-fearing witnesses you might say that see that and they're very excited and they're they have been they've had several weeks now of being able to set the stage as more and more jews are streaming into jerusalem and to get people excited they'd already heard about jesus maybe many of them had been healed or knew somebody who had been healed right so there's all of that history of, of the, the years of ministry, and it now culminates as people are streaming into Jerusalem. And, and at the very end of chapter 11, John gives us an idea, you know, a hint, sort of a, a glimpse of what the conversation was as people were standing in the temple talking to one another. Do you think he's going to come to the feast? Right? There's this buzz, and it's palpable, and it's exciting. And the leaders are scared to death. And, and here's the critical thing. God is in charge. The leadership doesn't want to put him to death during the Passover. They want to wait till afterwards. The people, many of the people, many of them, didn't want to put him to death at all. They wanted him as their king. God 
had his lamb, his Passover lamb, that was to be killed at exactly the time when the other Passover lambs, which were just a symbol of him, were being killed. And it's amazing to me as I'm as I'm studying the timeline. Like I say in some future notes, I hope to maybe be able to make sense of this. It's controversial, and I probably won't get it right. But um, to to put it together based on what we know from the from the the days, because we definitely know that the 14th of Nisan was when they were to be killing when the Passover lamb was to be killed. Okay? So that is almost certainly the date when he was crucified. Um, but then trying to make sense of the details from all of the, the Gospels. Uh, there, are, there are things that, you know, you, you take one view and a lot of stuff lines up, but there's a few things over here that are probably take a different view and same. So, but the point is <clears throat> that God, he works at such a grand scale. It's just amazing. Grand scale in terms of time, you know, this thousands of years going back when he gave the law back there in Exodus. I said Leviticus, but it's actually Exodus. Where he, he lays out exactly the dates when Passover would be celebrated and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that comes right after that. Um, all, he lays all of that typology thousands of years ago and then works through all of the eons of the thousands of years of time and generations of people coming and going, and it comes right down to this moment right here. Which also, by the way, I didn't touch on this in the notes, but this presentation of the king lines up exactly to the day when a prediction in Daniel said he would come. And he rides in precisely that day. Amazing. Alright, so that's a little bit of a overview. Let's, uh, let's read our notes and work our way through it. The opening scripture that I put uh, at the top of our notes is a, is a section from Psalm 118. Does anybody know what Psalms 113 through 118 are called? Say no. Yes, the hello. Say it slow. Yes, the hello. Okay. And those psalms were particularly popular at festive, festival, festive times, especially you remember uh, back a, a few sets of notes earlier when we looked at, uh, when we were studying uh, chapters 7 through 10, remember chapters uh, John 7 through 10 take place against the backdrop of which festival, remember? Okay. Okay, well, it's known today as the Festival of Lights, but what is it called in Scripture? Hanukkah. Okay, it's called today Hanukkah, but what is it called in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Feast of? Tabernacles. Yes, tabernacles. Yes, yes, yes. It's one of the three that's that's required in the law to come and present yourself right to the Lord. I don't know. Purim actually is not in the law. And neither, by the way, is Hanukkah either. Remember that Hanukkah is a is two months later, it's sort of a, an echo of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, we looked at all that. 
Right. Um, Purim, Purim, actually is how you say it, is, is, uh, comes out of the book of Esther. It's just a two-day celebration. It's not really in Scripture, but uh, anyway. So during that time, the Feast of the Tabernacles, those psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, are popular. They're, they're read. So also is the book of Ecclesiastes. That's, that's what would be common to study, you know, especially as you're there with your family in the open stars can shine through your little booth at night, you know, when you're thinking about life under the sun. Right. <clears throat> All right. So I put this little snippet there from Psalm 118, because this would have been these Psalms and the truth in these Psalms would have been heavily on the minds of the people as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And you can hear that when you, again, when you read all of the gospels together, you hear that in the, in the reactions of the people and the songs of the children as they dance when he finally comes to the temple and everything, okay, and what they say about him, okay? And I just, I found this, as I was reading through those, I, I really like this. I think it sets the tone for, for our study. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. What did Jesus say about in John 10? I am the door. Okay. The door for the sheep. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is who's doing? The Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Be glad in it. It could very well be that that song is a prediction in advance of this occasion. I, I, the more I read it, the more I'm convinced that's what it is. Because who is the gate to righteousness? Who's your hope of salvation? That's what he says here. Thank you that you've answered me and become myself. Who's, who's the hope of salvation? Jesus. This is the cornerstone the builders rejected, right? The leaders of Israel rejected him. But the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Piecing together the triumphal entry. You see a little, um, <clears throat> I found a little map there. Um, nice and simple to kind of give you. Unfortunately, as is the trouble with all maps, it's two-dimensional. It doesn't show you the third dimension there, but there is a little there is a little bit of a rise in the hill going from Bethany up to um, Bethphage or uh, I call it Bethphage. Okay, there's different pronunciations, but Beth Bethphage. Oh, you see where it says under Bethphage there, Mount of Olives. Okay, so there's a little bit of a rise there in the geography, and it's, again, when you read the Gospels, Jesus is making his way um we don't actually it's the map says bethphage is there but we really don't know where bethphage is we just don't know um one of the gospels gives a hint that it was a little hamlet maybe just sort of opposite bethphage, <coughs> closer i tend to think that's the case because by the time jesus crests the hill 
the Mount of Olives, and he gets sight of Jerusalem, that's when he spontaneously bursts into tears. He weeps over the city. Oh, Jerusalem. Right? Did not know the hour of your visitation. Okay, and he was by that point he was already on the on the donkey, on the on the colt. Okay. Um, but anyway, that's that's just sort of gives you a general idea of how close Bethany is to Jerusalem and the route, the likely route that he took in this triumphal entry. So let's not get too distracted with that. Let's follow me on the notes here, okay? Piecing together triumphal entry. All the gospel accounts include the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. Look at the notes. Okay, and there, there are the, for your own reading later, you can read those. However, in their accounts, they do not connect the enthusiasm of the crowd that welcomed him into the, into the city with shouts of joy and cries for salvation with the raising of Lazarus. Only John fills in this important detail without which we are left wondering about the paradox of a city full of pro-Jesus people on the one hand, yet a sizable crowd pushing for his crucifixion within a few days time. By the way, that sizable crowd pushing for his crucifixion was largely comprised of the Jews, the leaders themselves. Let's keep that in mind. The answer from John is that the nation was divided over him. The resurrection of Lazarus was his greatest display of divine power and served to convince many that he was their long-awaited Messiah. When you read all the accounts together, you get the strong sense that the city swelling with numbers of faithful God-fearing worshipers estimated to be as high as one to two million plus. Um, estimates can uh, refresh this again as we estimates run as high as 2.2.6 million people. Think about that. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Matthew uses the phrase very great multitude. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> they're beginning to get an understanding of where those people are coming from. Okay? Um, when you read all the accounts together, you get a strong sense that the city, swelling with numbers of faithful, God-fearing worshipers, estimated to be as high as one to two million plus, was buzzing with excitement from the three years of numerous miracles that culminated with the resurrection of Lazarus. As he crests the Mount of Olives and sees Jerusalem, Jesus weeps over the city as he foresees her destruction because she has she missed the day of her visitation by him. How ironic that, just as the people misunderstood his tears at the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. Remember that? Oh, look how he loves him. No, he's not weeping for Lazarus, sweetie. He's weeping for you. Weeping for you. And just like they mis misinterpreted him then, they also misunderstood his journey into Jerusalem. Instead of coming to take his throne, he is coming as the Lamb of God. Remember, that's what John the Baptist said about him, wasn't it? Back in chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is not coming to take his throne, but rather he's coming as the Lamb of God to be killed during the Passover. 
one interesting possibility is that this presentation, watch this now, this is cool. Y'all listening? Everybody zone out. Yeah. One interesting possibility is that this presentation is happening on the same day that the Passover lambs were being selected. I like that. And that kind of dawned on me. I was like, oh, yeah. And I went back and did a little calculus. It fits. I mean, I'm right. It's possible. If so, it, it would make this the 10th of Nisan and the pat with the Passover lambs being killed four days later on the 14th of Nisan. Exodus 12, 1 through 6 gives these dates. So it's spelled out. Those dates are there. And what it, what it says is, you know, we're not Jewish, so we don't fully appreciate it. We have to go back and get our heads around this, all right? But the Passover lamb is killed on the 14th of Nisan, but you were to, to, to select. There's some debate as to whether you actually selected it on the 10th of Nisan, or that's when you started the selection process. And over the next few days, you, you would, the head of the household would get the lamb, select it. And, would, and remember, the lamb had to... You don't just like go get one at Walmart, you know, and, and then and then an hour later, you know, it's like turkey from England or something, and you just there's no connection with it. Remember, you were supposed to be living with this lamb for a few days in the family, right? So there's a bond there, there's an affection there, so that it hurts when that lamb is given. His life is taken. Okay. There's an affection there. And so what what I find fascinating. Is, this, is the possibility that this triumphal entry of Jesus is not only coinciding with exactly when Daniel said that he would present himself, but also coinciding with the time in the law when it says, Here's, this is when you are to select your lamb. And here is God's selection of his Passover lamb coming to Jerusalem to die. Pretty, pretty cool. Gives me chills. Jesus continued to pour fuel on the fires of this enthusiasm by promptly going to the temple after being welcomed by the crowds and cleansing it for the second time. And that's all in, in the other Gospels. As we saw with our study, Unbelief on Trial from chapter 11, the chief priests slash Sadducees who ran the temple system were deeply unpopular with the people because they suffered under the corruption of these evil shepherds. Remember John 10 is where he's really nailing the, the, the evil of those shepherds, calling himself the good shepherd, right? And bringing to mind Ezekiel, what chapter? Y'all remember? 34, right? Ezekiel 34. If you haven't read Ezekiel 34, do it again. But boy, God is not kind to those leaders of Israel. Hmm. While it is certainly true that King Jesus was defending the ruined house of prayer of his father and also standing against the threat that the evil religious system had become to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, John seems to be making the point that Jesus was yet again pushing the Jews, the religion, the leadership of Israel, towards their rejection of him by seeing him as a threat to their place. Remember in the end of chapter 11, that's really what 
what clinches the deal. He's a threat to our place. Rome's going to come and take our place and our nation away, right? Okay. So, so God is God is taking their evil lust for power and money and prestige and using it <laughs> to put his own lamb on the cross to die for the sins of his people. We're beginning to catch a little idea of why God, how God, the Father, and the Son are glorified in the cross. It's amazing to see that, you know, how he how he takes even Satan's desire to put him there. It takes all of that, all the people who are anti-Jesus and all the people who are pro-Jesus, and the whole thing got, doesn't stop him at all. In fact, he uses it all and works it together at the perfect time to accomplish his purposes. It's astounding. His ultimate mission... <coughs> From the Father was to be the good shepherd who gives his life to protect his sheep from their greatest threat. And what is that? God's wrath. Yeah. The greatest threat, and that's still true today, right? What's the greatest threat to us? It's not the Democrats, <laughs> not the Republicans. It's not the news media. Um, it's actually God. If you are outside of Christ, your greatest threat is God. And what's amazing is that he knows that, and he, as the good shepherd, intervenes and gives his life so that your greatest threat becomes now your greatest ally. Your greatest asset. Your enemy becomes your father. And you are adopted and brought into the kingdom. Complete reversal. Not even like a, you know, we're not talking about a, a 90 degree turn. We're talking about 180. Complete reversal of your fortunes, as it were. Completely changed. From poverty to riches. From wrath to life. From darkness to light. From hatred to he makes the greatest enemy turns into his greatest friend. That's right. Not just a friend. The closest of human relationships. We're the bride of Christ. We're the God's children. We're his heirs. You know, the closest human relationships are used to picture this. It's amazing. Uh, and it's marvelous in our eyes, right? Uh, he gives uh, his life to protect his, his sheep from their greatest threat, namely the wrath of God for their sins. There is a celebratory mood in the Gospels as many sick people come to him while he teaches in the temple and the children dance <clears throat> with songs of praise for the son of David, clearly expecting him to take the, th the throne. This leads John to tell us in 1219 that the Pharisees were very discouraged, thinking their worst fears had come true and that, quote, the world has gone after him, end quote. But once again, we see that God the Father's timing and plan is very different than uh, than what any of them were expecting. These Jewish leaders would get their wish to kill him in a few days, and doubtlessly it was the best Passover meal many of them had had in a long time. Think about that. Right? After he was on the cross and they went home to celebrate the rest of Passover, and, the, and the, actually at sundown, it's the start of of uh, 
a high Sabbath the next day, which which kicked off the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was a great time for that. Okay. But for his disciples, this was a dark and depressing Passover. But their despair was about to be turned to joy by the greatest miracle of all, as God the Father showed his satisfaction with the atoning work of the Lamb by raising him from the dead. Jesus himself will soon warn his disciples about this turn of events. This is coming up in, in, in the upper room discourse in just a few days from, from the triumphal entry. He's going to tell them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He tells them right, verses right before this. He says, I'm going away for a while, and you won't see me, but then you'll see me again. And you and you, and you will have your joy. Nobody will take that part. So you can hear the emotional roller coaster here, right? <clears throat> it's, it's weird because as the triumphal entry is happening, the crowd and 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 all of these witnesses of Lazarus's raising, which are believing in him and his disciples, man, they're on cloud nine. Woo, yes, here comes the son of David. Finally, finally, he's taking his rightful place and he's coming in and presenting himself. And they knew what riding on a donkey meant, okay? They knew that but a king came in peace, he would do. That's why there's a strong theme of kingliness in their welcome to him, okay? They knew this and... But all the way back in chapter 6, remember, there were many who wanted to make him king. Finally, and they're on an emotional high. The leaders, however, are going down the opposite way. They're depressed and they're sad. Okay, But then in a few days, it goes like that. And, and Jesus' disciples and those closest to him. And we actually see the reaction, I think, the reaction of the crowd because... Remember, there were thousands of people, and, and many of them left. It's, they probably didn't even really, maybe they heard in passing about the crucifixion or whatever. But we see the full reaction of this later in Acts when Jesus, or when Peter preaches at uh, Pentecost, and they, he, he says, you put, to, you put to death the prince of life, right? Your leaders did. And they tear their robes, and what shall we do? They were so devastated, right? So, so you have this, this bottoming out of, of his, the leadership in Israel is exuberated now as he's hanging on the cross and as he's dead in the grave. And his followers, they're emotional. They went to the emotional depths of where the leaders were just a few days earlier. But then in the mm -hmm. resurrection, their emotions come back up. But the leaders, they never see his resurrection. They never see him post-resurrection. Anyway, just some things to keep in mind. And and I guess what, as I was thinking about this, what happens to us, um, you know, God knows that. He knows He knows the up and down roller coaster ride of emotion that we go through, right? Um, and, you know, I'll be honest with you. There are times when, you know, the Christian life is not all... <laughs> Fun and roses and happy, you know, cupcakes and sugar. You know, there are there's some bitter times. And Jesus tells he's going to end this the his words to his disciples in sermon, not sermon, but the upper room discourse in chapter sixteen. In this world, you will, you will have trouble, and trial, 
persecution. For what? Do not fear. I have overcome it. And so our hope is not in the in what we feel at any given moment in time and what the circumstances look like. This is so hard for us. It's hard for me. And you know, I mean, <laughs> just yesterday, you know, um, and, and things happen. You know, in one moment you're, you're up here, and, hey, God is great and good, and you know, you had a wonderful trip, and then you come back the next day, and something happens, and you're down here, and you know, you're mad, you're full of fear, you're full of doubt, you're grumpy, you're in despair, whatever. Just remember who the engineer of that roller coaster is, right? He's designed it so you know you're not falling out. It's custom made, just for you. Our greatest, our greatest hope is in the promises that we have. Not in what we have right now, but in the promises that we have. You know? That's right. Oftentimes we think that of our hope is what what can God do for us today? You know, in this life. And you know, the more I study, I see how how that's kind of misread and misused sometimes. Because we think God is, is going to do everything good in our life as we live it right here. But but our real hope is in the future what he has promised. That's I see, I see that more and more. You know? That's right. And God is good. He does <clears throat> He does bless us now. Mm-hmm. And he does work out our our little problems and you know, I just discovered my tire brand new tires weren't flat you know yesterday and I know that's gonna be you know I mean this is all kinds of, it's like what else you know um but the ebbs and you know he he watches over and blesses us and I don't mean to say it's all bad all the time we had a woke up uh, a couple weeks ago um and the house was cold 66 and we're like man what's going on you know anyway so I did my usual short list of checks of things, this, that, and the other. And uh, we had smelled a little propane down there. And I've learned you smell, if you have gas or propane in the house, you know, go in the door, you smell it. Um, anyway, so long story short, it was a, a faulty part in the tank out there and it had leaked 100, and we don't know how many, we're just guessing about 150 gallons of propane. And uh, <clears throat> well, called the company you know and it's like if this is happening on top of everything else you know and it's like lord how much can we take and I called the company and they came and i forgot that the well the, the tank is actually owned by the company we pay out seven dollars a year rental the labor they had two guys show up to, to fix it the labor and 150 gallons um were credited back for free because of that so you know the Lord the scripture says that he has torn us so that he can heal us he specializes in broken people broken world and he he has I mentioned this in the in the communion last time you know when Jesus takes that matzo bread and he says this is my body what broken for you we have a Messiah that knows what it is to be broken 
He knows what it is to come into this world, be misunderstood, be a man of sorrow, to be rejected by his own people. The very leaders who should have known better, should have known his genealogy, they should have known the prophecies that he fulfilled, and, and certainly the miracles themselves, they should have welcomed him into Jerusalem. And said, welcome, you know, and we repent. They didn't. And yet, God is in charge of all of that. He's in charge of it all. We'll pick up next time with um, the next section there, King Jesus. This is an exciting one. We're going to look at how John uses the term king. I thought Matthew was, was, was where all the king terms for king were, were uh, used, and that's not true, <clears throat> of course. John also it comes in second place with the most mentions of, of the king in the two Gospels. Pretty interesting. Let's, uh, let's start. <clears throat> Father, we are astounded, um, like it says there in, the, in Psalm 118. This is marvelous in our eyes. We're in awe of such a great God. This is further proof of the divine origin of this book. Not only the prophecies that you fulfilled, but how you, as Larry rightly said, your promises to us. And you are good because you know that we easily doubt. And so you do fill, fulfill promises to protect us and to keep us and to provide for us. You said you would provide for our needs here in, in this in this life, and you do. And many times you provide, unexpectedly sometimes, the wants as well, and the joys. And we know they come from your hand. But these are just foretastes of what is to come, because you have also promised that we will have trial, we will have struggle, we will be, we will also, to a lesser degree certainly, but we will also be misunderstood by family and friends. <clears throat> You'll also be, um, ha have our, our own uh, feelings ride that roller coaster in one moment of triumph and then the other moments where you crash and you, and you hit the dirt, so to speak, and, and emotionally. <clears throat> we thank you that through it all, you are steady, you are unchanging, you are the rock that we can build our life upon, and you are not affected by the circumstances and by our emotions. You have chosen to set your love upon us, and there's nothing we can do about it. You have given your, the, your, your son as our substitute, and we have eternal life already now for those who are in him. We thank you for that. There's nothing that can change it. As Paul said, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. So thank you for this truth. Remind us again of it this morning. Help us to, as we enter a worship service to celebrate you again uh, for the mighty and uh, awesome nature and your promises.
In Jesus' name. Thank you.